I was talking with somebody out in the parking lot uh, earlier this morning before coming into the church, and someone said, just looking at it, they said, uh, isn't God good? And I said, he sure is. But here's the thing. Those mountains are always there, whether we can see them or not. And God's goodness is always there, whether we can see it or not. But we sure, uh, sure rejoice in the times that we can see that. So, Would you just pray with me, and then uh, we'll open God's word together, okay? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the many ways that you show us yourself, your nature, your character, your goodness. We see it with our eyes as we look around and we uh, see the beautiful creation that you've made. You've, you've uh, put things there like fireweed and uh, just beautiful uh, birds and big animals like moose and bear wild creatures, fish like salmon that just have these uh, incredible patterns in their life. And we see, Father, just the creativity of your handiwork. We see the greatness of our God. We just catch a glimpse of it by seeing what your hand has made. So, Father, this morning I pray that we would take all of those things into account. Your creation, your word, your people, your son Jesus Christ your Holy Spirit, that we would just dwell on these things and that we would worship you for who you are. Father, as we look at your word now, I do pray that you would uh, just help us to see what you want each one of us to take from it. Uh, If there's just a simple message, just one point that each person could take, I pray, Lord, that you would speak clearly to them through your word, through your Holy Spirit. So be with us now as we study, as we continue to worship you uh, through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, We're in the 26th chapter of the book of Genesis. Uh, We started this thing in January, and I told you that at the end of the summer, I hoped that we would be looking at some of the narrative stories of the life of Joseph. We're not there yet. We've got a ways to go, so we're a little behind. But guess what? We're not in any hurry. This is a good book, and we're just going to settle down in it, and we're going to learn from it. So uh, today we're actually in Genesis chapter 26. Uh, We're over halfway and just because of that, I want to just, just pause for just a second here this morning. And I want to just spend a, uh, just a second reminding us um, about this book. About, uh, I mean, Genesis covers more time than any other book. Uh, in fact, all of the books of all of Scripture put together. Genesis is, it covers more of a time period than that. Uh, it's vast. And so it's just a good... Good chance to pause. We don't want to miss the forest for the trees here. So let's pull back just a second and remind ourselves of some things. The author of the book uh, of Genesis is who? It's Moses. And remember his audience. He's writing to this group of Jewish refugees. This is the original audience. And they're coming out of Egypt. They've been in slavery for 400 years. And they're, they're coming out wandering in the desert. And they are learning about God. Okay? They're learning their own family story. They're learning about who God is, about His nature and His purposes. This is worldview 101, theology 101, family history 101. That's what it is. And and so we're learning about God and about these kinds of things through the ears and the minds of these original hearers. This isn't written directly to us. It's written indirectly to us through their lives. So we need to continue to put their ears on and hear what they would have heard so that we will rightly interpret things. So that's what's going on. Remember, the purpose of this book is that uh, after these Jewish refugees had been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt, uh, their theology was pretty poor. 
Their understanding of God and their sense of themselves was weak. Uh, they had been in and around the polytheistic nation and seen the worship of other gods, and, uh, and so they were in a weak spot. They needed to know the nature of their God. And that's, that's what this book, among other things, tells us. I also want to introduce this uh, series. I let you know that the, the book of Genesis is really arranged in ten parts, or some people call it ten books, but ten parts is probably the best way to think of it. Uh, and it's arranged around a Hebrew word, toledah, which means the generations of or the descendants of. And so it takes these key figures throughout the book and it says these are the descendants of Adam. These are the descendants of Noah. These are the descendants of the sons of Noah. And it kind of goes through like that. And so we're actually on the seventh one here. We're on, uh, or actually the eighth one on Isaac. We started that in chapter uh, 25. So we're on the eighth part of ten parts of this book. And we're looking at now sort of the family line of Isaac here. That's where we are. And remember for the book, the book of Genesis, the big picture overall, one of the really key important things that we are supposed to take from this book is that we need to learn that God is the protagonist in history. He's the main character. He is the central figure. It's about Him. This book is His story. It's not our story where we get to incorporate a little bit of God into our life to make things easier and more palatable. This is God's story. He's paramount, central. He's the key figure. It's about Him. And this is how He has chosen to interact in creation and with His people. As we pick up in chapter 26 here, we have uh, basically the event of Abraham's death was last chapter. As Pastor Mark put it, it was a season-ending injury uh, for Abraham. He's dead. He's gone. And so there's a question probably for these Jewish refugees of, well, now what's going to happen? He kind of seemed to be a main character type, and now he's out of the story. And so the first point that we see that kind of lets us know that uh, what's going on here is simply that God's program continues. Abraham's gone, but God's not done yet with his program, with what he's doing. It's going to continue on. It didn't stop with Abraham. His work was to pioneer. Isaac's work's going to be to consolidate But his promises and his program are going to continue. And so our Jewish refugees would have heard that, that God's work continues from generation to generation. It's not localized in any one person, but throughout history. So look with me in uh, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and, I, and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all the lands, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. So we pick up on the life of Isaac here. And actually, this is the only chapter in the book of Genesis that deals exclusively with Isaac. And the first thing that he encounters, basically after taking over for dad here, is he encounters a famine. And I want you to think about this for a second. This is a pretty ominous uh, beginning uh, to, the, to sort of his, his season in, in uh, this story. There's a famine. You and I might just quickly read past that and fail to grasp the significance. So let me put it in terms we would understand. 
Fred Meyer's shelves are empty. There's no food. Okay? People are fleeing the town. Imagine your own babies not being able to provide milk and, and basic, the basic food that they need. Imagine your own children, their bellies growing emaciated and swelling for hunger. Not kids far away, your kids. Imagine your wife's responsibilities for the day. Her to-do list is forage for food. Imagine having incredible wealth measured in terms of livestock, cattle, and different herds, and watching them one by one starve off. This, this is the world. This is what's happening. Great bless, blessing, great responsibility, and a great famine. What's Isaac to do about this? And one of the things that I, I think we really need to see from this, we need to learn from this, um, is that this, this famine happened in the promised land. This was the land where they were supposed to flourish. This was going to be a blessing. This was going to be a great place. But it's there that this famine occurred. And I think there's a lesson in that for you and I. And that's simply that we might be right in the center of what God wants us to do. Obedient, pleasing Him, honorable. And it might be right there in that instance, in that place in life where we have to deal with some uh, profound challenges. God doesn't guarantee us an easy, troubleless life. Sometimes being right in the middle of what God wants us to do we may be learning some of the most or encountering some of the most profound challenges. Look at the Apostle Paul, chief apologist for the Christian church, wrote most of the New Testament, wrote most of that from where? From prison. Martyred for his faith, killed under Nero. He had been shipwrecked, he had been beaten and flogged, he had been uh, improperly imprisoned, falsely tried, and he was in the center of God's will. Consider the life of John Huss, a forerunner to the, to the Reformation, to Luther and to Calvin. When he began to challenge some of the, the poor doctrines of the Catholic Church, was burned alive at the stake and a sinner of God's will. Bill Bright, uh, in the late 1900s, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, is the man who published the uh, Four Spiritual Laws, a great evangelism tract that's been used by many. Maybe you yourself have seen it or used it. Maybe you even came to know Christ through it. When he, when he published that little booklet, he was criticized by the church because they believed he had gone soft on the gospel. You know why? Because he started it with, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, instead of, you're a wretched sinner. And he was criticized for that. Maybe one of the most effective evangelism tools that have been used in modern history. And he faced incredible criticism from the church. Mark Driscoll, a very prominent pastor in the Seattle area, preaches to thousands every weekend. Preaches with bodyguards on stage because of the death threats that he receives. I, I think it would be kind of cool to have bodyguards on stage. <laughs> Not the death threats, but... okay, We can be right in the center of God's will. Doing exactly what God wants us to do. Serving Him, pleasing Him, and be facing some of the greatest opposition we'll ever encounter. And Isaac is an example to us of that. This passage shows us that we can't take a look at life's circumstances and derive from that God's sense of approval or disapproval of our life. It's not life circumstances that tells us those things. 
Well, what's Isaac going to do? What's his reaction? His first reaction is very literally to look for the green grass. After all, he's got flocks and herds to feed and to take care of, and so uh, he kind of goes out trying to figure out what he's going to do. The text indicates that Egypt was the place to go. After all, that's where Abraham went. It worked well for him. And so that's basically what he's after. And I would suspect that you and I would do something similar. If the, the Fred Meyer and Safeway had no food here in town, and, uh, I don't know about your garden this year, but ours was pretty lame, so uh, we'd probably be looking for food elsewhere. We'd probably be hopping a plane and going to see family and seeing what they had in their pantry. Okay? We'd be looking for the green grass too. Trouble with a lot of Christians is I think that we live as Christians assuming that God is going to perennially give us green grass. We're going to have prosperity, right? After all, we're on God's team. He wants to bless me. So surely he's going to give me an abundance, right? Jesus taught something very differently in John 16. He said this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Maybe Bill Bright was wrong. Maybe the fourth spiritual or the first uh, spiritual law should have read, God loves you and has a trouble-filled plan for your life. (laughs) At least we wouldn't be surprised when it arrives. In the midst of these kinds of seasons, it's the voice of unbelief in us that says, how can I get out of this? But it's the voice of faith that says, what can I get out of this? So Isaac's first reaction is, look for the green grass. Escape. Get out of this circumstance. God has a different plan for him. And he has a different place for him in this season of life. And so God basically instructs him to sojourn, is the word. Uh, He appears to him in a theophany. And you you and I are sort of getting used to this. God shows up and speaks to one of these patriarchs. It happened to Abraham a bunch. This is Isaac's first time. And I would submit that if God suddenly showed up and started talking to you, it would be a big deal, okay? But this is what he does. And he, for the first time, comes along and his word to him essentially is to stay uh, for a while. I love the way the, the King James puts it. It's the word sojourn. And it has inherent with it a temporary nature. If it were the, in the Alaskan Amplified Bible, it would say set up camp. Put your tent up. This is moose camp. You're going to be here for a while. And so he's to sojourn. It's a temporary kind of thing. And I would submit to you that this is an incredibly difficult decision for Isaac. He has great responsibility on his shoulders. He's supposed to be advancing the program. His father, Abraham, had handed him something rich, had handed him incredible wealth and blessing, and he's supposed to move it forward and advance the ball, right? And after all, dad went down to Egypt. That's where he got wealthy. Things worked out pretty good for him there, so you can imagine that this is uh, an easy temptation for him to go down and do this, and yet God says, no, you're to stay put in the land where there's a famine, where the crops are not yielding what is necessary for your flocks. You're to stay put. And so I just want the weight of that to fall on you so that we would understand that this is a heavy thing for him to learn. And so verse 6 probably says maybe the most flattering thing about Isaac in this whole passage. It says, So Isaac stayed in Gerar. He listened to the Lord. He obeyed. A counterintuitive message. 
And he did what God instructed him to do. As we move on in the story, we see that not only in this main point here does God's program continue from generation to generation, but we actually are going to see that man's problems continue from generation to generation. Isaac may be a patriarch, but he's no saint. He's just like his old man. And so we see the problems continue here. Look at verse 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. Does this sound familiar to anybody? This is about the third time, it is the third time we've run into this. Because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she's beautiful. And I've got to stop here. Now, these guys have a problem. Okay? Either one, they need to toughen up a little bit, or two, they need to stop marrying pretty ladies. Okay? And start marrying somebody ugly, life might be easier for them. Their insecurity is taken over here. Verse 8, when Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, She is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, Because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, just stop for just a second. We've got this character Abimelech. Interesting guy, uh, memorable name. Not too many kids named Abimelech uh, today, but um, I would submit to you that this is not the same individual that Abraham uh, dealt with uh, several chapters earlier. Uh, In fact, there's about 90 years gap time between the two different events. Okay, uh, I would tell you that I, I believe Abimelech to be more of a title, uh, like Caesar or Pharaoh, something like that. In fact, there's another individual that shows up with him who is Fakal later on, and I believe these are titles of, of position. So uh, for sake of, of the passage this morning, this is Abimelech too. Okay? This is the next guy uh, in line. And so here we are. We get, we get a picture of, um, of Isaac, and we learn that He's not too different from dad. He's a good guy. He's a patriarch. He's part of the chosen family. But like dad, Isaac's faith is also mixed with fear. In the first six verses, we find in Isaac that we like. He seems practical, hardworking, responsible. He cares for his family and for these flocks that have been handed to him. He's a family guy. James Dobson would be proud of him. He would approve. We like this guy. Maybe we found a patriarch we can be proud of instead of blushing over the embarrassing seasons of life that some of these other guys have done. And then in verses 7 through 11, we realize, no, he's a scoundrel, just like Dad. Pick your cliche. He's a chip off the old block. Apple didn't fall far from the tree. More was caught than taught. Just like his dad, he's going to allow fear to drive him to poor decisions at times too. And I want to stop here because I think there's something really interesting. In this, this theophany, God gives him a command and says, I want you to stay put. I want you to stay in this season or in this area despite the, uh, the famine that they're experiencing. And that's a huge thing. And, and I think in some, some senses, verse 6 kind of indicates that it seems like that was fairly simple obedience. He simply said, 
I mean, there's just no way I can control this or manage this. I'm just going to do and obey and trust God for it. And so it seems to me that in Isaac's life, it's not the big, huge things that he has difficulty trusting God for. It's the smaller things. Like the insecurity of having a pretty wife. And I think the same is true for you and I. I think you and I go through seasons of life where something can be so difficult and so ominous, we throw our hands up and say, I just have to trust the Lord. What we're really saying is, there's no way I can do this, and I know that. Where I think we actually really struggle to trust the Lord sometimes is in the smaller things. I should be able to manage this. This should be under my control. And I think sometimes we fail to yield control to the Lord in some of the smaller things. Well, Isaac not only is similar to his dad in that his faith is mixed with fear, but he actually repeats the sin of his father and he lies about the nature of his relationship to his wife. I want you to think for a second. Remember Abraham's lie about Sarah? It was actually kind of a half lie, wasn't it? Or at least there was half truth to it. She really was his half sister. But it was a deception because they were lying about the nature of their relationship. They were married and they were indicating that they weren't. So it was a lie, but there was an element of truth. For Isaac here, there is no element of truth. This is a bold-faced, absolute lie. Not a shred of truth to it. And dads, I don't know about you, but for me this is incredibly humbling and sobering. Because here a son has learned something from his father that his father did not intend to teach him. This wasn't passed on by intent. This was something that his son caught by observing his dad's behavior. That's sobering. Fathers, you will teach your sons by the way you conduct yourself in life. It is not do as I say, not as I do. Your sons and your daughters will learn of you by your life, not your words. And that ought to sober each and every one of us. So Isaac repeats the sin of his father. This is the third time in 15 chapters that we've seen this same storyline. Abraham lied about the, uh, the nature of his relationship to Sarah when he went down to Egypt the first time. He lied to Pharaoh and said, she's my sister. He did it again in this same territory in Gerar to Abimelech, lying about the nature of his, his wife, saying that, that she was his sister. And now Isaac has done the same thing with Rebekah. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready for a real man to walk in the room with this pretty bride on his arm and say, listen everybody, this is my wife. This pretty lady is my bride. Okay? Hands off, eyes off, she's mine. She belongs to me. And if you've got any funny business planned, you know, meet me out at the woodshed. We'll talk about it there. Okay? This is not the way that God intended marriage to be. And these stories are told about these, these patriarchs to their shame. They're not an example of how a man treats his wife. The example that Scripture gives to us is in Ephesians 5. And it says that the way, the example that we are to look to for how we treat our wives is the person of Jesus Christ and the way that he treated the church. That is, he gave himself up for her. He served her, taught her, encouraged, nourished, and sacrificed his life for her. That's the example, men, of how we are to treat our wives. And I want to challenge you, specifically single men right now. If you want a bride, but you are not prepared to serve and defend and protect and encourage and lead and sacrifice for a bride, you have no business getting married. 
And men, if those of you who are married, if God has given you a bride, then he has entrusted you with one of his daughters. And that ought to sober you up, and yet something you should take seriously. That lovely woman on your arm is not an accessory to your life. She's the daughter of the king. And by the way, one day when you get to heaven, you're going to have to give her back. And I would just suggest that you'd better give her back in mint condition. Not worn out and used up and tired from serving you. That she ought to be radiant because of the way you have served her. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Well, Isaac gets caught in his lie. He's not going to get away with it. Verse 8. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. This is kind of a fun word here, too, this word caressing. Uh, It's actually a word that appears often with Isaac. The word is actually misahak. And it's based on the, the root word sahak, which means laughter. Okay? And that keeps coming up with Isaac. Remember when Sarah was uh, approached by the Lord and, and the Lord said, you're going to have a child. She laughed. That word is sahak. And then because she did that, God said, you're going to name him Isaac, sahak, laughter. And then Ishmael, remember after Isaac had been weaned and Ishmael was kind of out making fun out of him, teasing him like brothers do. The word is the same. It was a mocking, teasing, sahak. It's the same word. And again, it shows up here. And it says that Isaac is out caressing misahak, uh, his wife. And so it's sort of this, this playful, uh, joking little thing. I actually really like the, the way the King James translates it. It's much better. It says this, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. Isn't that great? And I, I love it because it makes these people seem real. You know, these aren't gown-wearing patriarchs from ages gone by that have complete dissimilarities to our lives. They're like us. Okay, this is a little kitchen cuddle that he's sneaking here. You know, he's kind of playing with his wife. He's jabbing her. It's affectionate. That's what's going on. And Abimelech's no dummy. He looks at first glance. He can see it. He knows that it's playful enough that this is family, but it's intimate enough not to be siblings. And he gets it. He's sporting with Rebecca. Okay. And so he challenges him on it. And I don't know about you, but what's amazing to me is that even this deception, it works out again. Works three times. Works out in their favor. It's just kind of amazing to me. Worked against Pharaoh. Worked worked against Abimelech 1. Worked against Abimelech 2. If we weren't careful, we'd think that the Bible's saying, go ahead and lie. Just lie. It'll work out. That's not what it's saying. Our Jewish refugees would have taken this and they would have seen God's program continues and man's problems continue. And despite chronic and, and family uh, cyclical sin, in spite of all of that, God's promised blessing continues. So that it's none of these men that are the hero, but it's God, the protagonist, the central figure. It's God's goodness to these people by grace, not what they're doing in and of themselves. Look at verse 12. Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year he reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his 
uh, father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up filling them with earth. So we see that God blesses him with wealth. Oh, I'm behind here. It says that they basically started to envy him. And I need to pause here for just a second because I think some teachers would look at this and say, you know what this passage tells us? It tells us that God wants to bless your life. He wants you to be prosperous and successful. God intends for you to be wealthy and to drive a nice car and have a big house and a good job. See, God wants to bless you. That's what he's after. And I want to tell you, I don't think this passage teaches that at all. In fact, I think it tells us that it may be God's will for you that you wander the desert. That you don't live in prosperity, but that you live in poverty because he has a different plan for your life. That message is easily here as well. Look at John the Baptist. Was he in the center of God's will? Absolutely. He had to wear bad clothes, live in a desert, confront people about their sin, and die by being beheaded in the center of God's will. I think what this passage does show us is that if, God, if, you, if you are blessed with wealth, if you do have it, it's because God gave it to you, not because you accomplished it on your own. Even if you've worked hard, even if you've used the skills that you have, God gave you those resources, and he gave you those skills and those abilities. Think for a second, actually, if Isaac had had his way, he would just be coming back from Egypt about this time with his flocks and his herds and all of this, and he would now be trying to buy land in Gerar that is flourishing, so it would be a seller's market. Instead, he's on the prosperous end of the recession because he obeyed the Lord. The point here is not that God wants to bless you and make you rich, but simply if you are, it's because God has done it, not yourself. Actually, Isaac's wealth brings him a world of trouble. That's what he gets. Look at verse 16. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Move away from us. You've become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Isaac reopened the wells that he had, or that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. And he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, The water is ours. So he named the well Isaac, because they had disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also, so he named it Sitna. He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Reboath, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. And I think it's interesting here. You know, what starts out as almost seems like pranks from kids, you know, throwing in, uh, soil in the well here. We don't like you. Here's dirt in your well. Okay? And they basically stop these things up and bury it. Turn serious because Abimelech, their king, shows up with the eviction notice and says, get out. You're too powerful. We don't want you here. You're out. It doesn't just happen once, but it happens a bunch of times. And he continues to get pushed eastward, getting pushed out of what he believes is God's promised territory for him and for his descendants. And he's getting pushed further and further away from the green grass, and he finds himself out in the middle of the desert, the Negev. Incidentally, this desert is about 60 miles from where our Jewish refugees, our original audience, where they're wandering when they're hearing this message. Interesting. There's also, I think, an interesting contrast going on 
with Abimelech and his people. Now that Abraham is gone, they basically consider all of the treaties rescinded. They consider all the covenants void. They pull back all of those things. But in contrast to that, God upholds the covenant that he made to Abraham. It has not been rescinded. It has not been made void. Look at verse 23. From there he went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you, and you will increase the number in your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his personal advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his forces. Isaac asked them, Why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? Good question. They answered, We clearly saw that the Lord is with you. So we said, There ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we did not molest you, but always treated you well and sent you away in peace. And now you are blessed by the Lord. It's all they had something to do with it. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early in the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way and left them in peace, and they left him in peace. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug, and they said, We found water. And they called it Sheba, which to this day is the name of the town, has been Beersheba. And so the last thing that we see here really is this, that Abraham's, or excuse me, Isaac's trouble becomes a teacher to him. I don't know about you, but Isaac must have been wondering, what in the world is going on here? God swore a covenant to my father, Abraham. He confirmed it to me. This is the promised land, and I'm in it. And God keeps pushing me away from this green grass eastward into this obscure territory of desert. I should be settling. Instead, I'm sojourning. I should be wealthy. Instead, I'm wandering this desert. I should be building upon my father's success and advancing the program here. Instead, I'm losing ground. Isaac has to learn that blessing is not in a place. It's not in prosperity. But it is in the person of God himself. I'm sure he's wondering how his life has spiraled so far out of control here. And what's fascinating to me is it's actually Abimelech, the pagan king, and his entourage who comes in and speaks truth to him and says, we clearly saw that the Lord was with you. And I don't think Isaac had any sense of that at all. I get the impression that he just felt pushed out, pushed out, and frustrated. And yet, the pagan preaches to the patriarch. It's obvious that God's hand is upon you. And so this story literally goes from famine to feast. And at this feast they swear an oath. And they declare peace and all is well. The conclusion here. Isaac had his eyes set on the green grass. That's what he felt like he needed. But God was directing him to some hidden wells. Isaac felt he was being pushed out of the land of promise, into the land of obscurity. But God was pushing him deeper and deeper into a more intimate and trusting relationship with himself. 
Isaac saw blessing in a place, in a location. But God was showing him that blessing was in a person, in a relationship. And so I think for you and I, what we need to take out of this is this. Even though our lives are filled with twists and turns and unexpected things, disappointments and setbacks, we can be assured that God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will never fail to accomplish His purposes for our lives, even if it's very different from what we think it should be or expect it to be. God is good all the time, even when we can't see it. Let's pray. Lord, there are people in this room that can sit here and nod their head and say, I believe that and I see it in my life. And there are people that are here right now just on the brink and they would say that I believe this because your word says it, but I don't see it. Father, for those who can believe it by life's experiences, may they rejoice. For those who can't see your goodness because of life's circumstances, may they find comfort and peace in you because they know that you have overcome the trouble of this world. May they believe it by faith. Holy Spirit, teach each one as they need to be taught. Comfort each one as they need to be comforted. Have your way with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.